You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. I am joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. Hey. Hey there, guys. Good day. Aaron, how do I sound? Do I sound like do I sound, you sound okay? You sound a little uh, you sound a little gravelly. It's Again? not the it's not the regular uh uh honey honey smoothness I'm accustomed to. Just gonna tuck I'm gonna this, work uh, on it. Tuck this gum behind the microphone here. <laughs> Chided for chewing gum during the introduction. Uh, who's on the podcast this week? This week it's uh, Emily Bazelon, who uh, at the time that we recorded this uh, was actually at Slate and is very well known for being at Slate for many years and then uh, is now at the New York Times Magazine as of uh, this morning of taping this. There's a lesson there. I think it's come on the podcast, immediately get offered a job minutes afterwards. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> Even it. Even before the podcast before is out. Is. Yeah, just the word goes out that you're on the podcast and the offers start rolling in. That's it. Well, Emily has written a lot of uh, great stories for both of those publications, Slate and The Times Magazine, where she's now a staff writer, and a book called Sticks and Stones about bullying. Uh, she was really fun to talk to, even though she did not reveal this news to me so that we could break the news uh, on the podcast itself. Can't believe you didn't break her. Yeah. It's bad reporting. From now too on. Much, too much honey dripping. From now on, every guest that comes on, I'm just going to go, do you have any news? <laughs> Really now? Is that all you've got for me? Tell me about the job you took. Tell me. Um, do we have any sponsors this week, Max? In fact, we do. In fact, we do. I don't know if you guys have been uh, thinking about starting a newsletter. I have. You have? Uh, I have a suggestion for the platform with which to do that. Uh, it's Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is done by the good people at MailChimp, and we thank them for their sponsorship. Here's Evan and Emily Bastelon. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. It's great to be here. I'm honored. So I want to talk about uh, the story that uh, is just out in the Times Magazine, and I want to talk about your book and a bunch of other things. Uh, but first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into this in the first place and sort of how you ended up covering the sort of areas that you tend to cover. So I'm kind of curious, did you, you know, growing up, were you a person who was, you know, I want to be a writer, I'll always be a writer? Or did you sort of drift into it? How did you kind of get into journalism to begin with? 
Growing up, I was a huge reader, but I never really read any nonfiction. I was a total fiction junkie, fantasy novels and, you know, what we call YA now, all of that stuff. So I imagined myself as a fiction writer. Um, But then I realized in college that I was not good at that. And nonfiction is the sort of craft version, right, where you get to rely on other people to be interesting as opposed to having to make your own imagination of of interest to anyone else. Yeah, yeah. You get to skip the the making stuff up uh, part. But but you still have to do the writing part. I mean, was there... Did you have writing teachers or did you have someone, you know, that kind of like lured you into it by, you know, you're reading them or or learning from them or was there a sort of early person at all? You know, I really didn't do any journalism seriously at all until college. And at that point, I had both a nonfiction writing teacher and a fiction teacher hmm. who were both wonderful mentors, Fred Streeby, who's taught so many Yale undergraduates, and then Kate Walbert, who is a pretty amazing short story writer and novelist. And I think with both of them, it was their amazing energy, which has helped so many people, but also just the sense that they didn't think I was hopeless. (laughs) That was pretty huge. I'd say that's the big gift they gave me. (laughs) Did you feel hopeless before that? Um, I always have a lot of anxiety about... Anything I care about doing, whether I'm any good at it and need a lot of patting on the head. Um, so, yeah, I probably basically did. Huh. That's <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, seeing all the things that you've done and do now, uh, that's always sort of surprising to hear from someone who I think a lot of other people would look at and say, wow, best-selling book, and they see you on the Colbert Report or what have you and uh, think, like, she's got it all. It's funny. I was talking the other day in the car to a young journalist who called me for advice, and my husband, who was driving, was forced to listen. And when I got off the phone, he said, you know, you didn't really get across how much how much you struggled, like how hard it was, how little confidence you had. And he was thinking, especially of this period after college, you know, I went to Yale, so I had that handed to me, or at least like I had that background. But then I went to Israel for a year after I was at Yale and I did some freelancing there. But then I moved to California and I was out there because of my husband. We weren't married, but Mm -hmm. he was in graduate school at Berkeley and I had to look for a job. And it was hard. I had somehow sort of fallen. I didn't do the daily news at Yale and I had kind of fallen off of whatever like automatic conveyor belt to some great internship (laughs) or job there that existed, I'm sure. But I just wasn't on it. And instead, I wound up in the office of this small newspaper, um, one of the papers for the Alameda newspaper group, which owns the Oakland Tribune. But then I was not at the Tribune. I was like at a subsidiary in Uh. the town of Alameda. And the editor, really just to, because he could, made me sing the Yale fight song to him. <laughs> and then I didn't get the job. It was Wait, pretty bad. What? In the interview, was it kind of like a, a hazing, like Ivy League kid, if you're so great? Or was the, was the yes. editor like a Yale person? No, it was the first. It was like, oh, I could embarrass you. And I have the power to do that right this minute. And you're going to perform for me. And I didn't really know the words. I don't think anyone really knows the words after the first, like, refrain. Anyway, to me, it felt for several years in there, like I was learning a lot. I mean, that was really clear. But when I did get a job for another newspaper in that same group of newspapers, which was not a very good newspaper, 
I was doing, you know, two or three 10 or 12 inch newspaper stories a day. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in this like suburban community where there really wasn't very much news and where I felt like a fish out of water um, because I grew up in the city of Philadelphia. It just wasn't my world. And it felt to me like, you know, it wasn't really necessarily going anywhere. So then I went to law school. (laughs) That's the uh, every freelance journalist like in the back of their mind thinks. Uh, maybe I'll, I could always go to law school, and but you actually did it. I did, and I didn't go because I was giving up on journalism. I had this idea that it was going to be the answer to my um, journalism problems, and in the end, it sort of was perversely. Um, I did some writing while I was in, in law school, some journalism. I was an intern one summer at the Washington Post, which was, I think, that when I applied, the people at the Post were like, this is weird. But I mean, sure, we don't have any graduate students here or law students here, so maybe we'll give her a chance. And then while I was there, I had the great fortune of um, working with someone who turned into a huge mentor for me, um, Link Kaplan, who'd been a staff writer at The New Yorker and an editor at at U.S. News. And he was at Yale at that time to start a magazine called Legal Affairs, which started after I graduated. And I went to work for him. And that was my entry into both any kind of like national journalism and into magazine journalism. And it was a tiny publication, but Link has incredibly high standards. And so, you know, I owe him enormously for that opportunity. Yeah, and this was so you. He brought you on as a as an editor, as a staff writer. What was the kind of, or what, did everyone do everything? Everyone did everything, and I've had the I had the hybrid job there that I've had at Slate as well, which is to, I, w- I was a senior editor. It's sort of my permanent title, I guess. But I did a lot of writing as well as editing, and I actually think there should be more hybrid jobs like that. I think I'm a much better writer and a more sympathetic um, writer because I also edit and that it goes both ways. It's like there are two muscles and they're different, but they reinforce each other. And what, what was it about that atmosphere? I mean, I know I know Link a little bit. He's a he's a fantastic guy. He advised us early on when we were starting The Atavist about, you know, things things we should do. And I know, you know, I can rattle off like Nick Thompson, my Atavist co-founder was from there and Nadia Lobby, I think, was there. And John Swansburg. Yes, Swansburg, and John like, Swansburg. Yes, Kerner there's... used to write for it. Like, what was it about that place that, first of all, produced all of you, this group? Like, was there some special energy happening there? What, what was the atmosphere like at Legal Affairs? I think part of it was that Link was an amazing talent spotter. And part of it was that we fed off each other. We were really good friends. It was small. You know, we basically worked in one big room together with like sort of glass partitions that went part of the way up the wall. Um, you know, at one point when I was pregnant, I told Nadia and John and I think Nick and I thought I was like giving away this big secret I'd been keeping. And they were like, uh, Emily, we know. <laughs> <laughs> so we were close and it um, was a place where we were got to be choosy. The legal affairs didn't come out all that often. It was based, it was a bi-monthly um, meaning only six times a year. And so it was like a way that we really could get a lot of training in what it takes to put a magazine piece together, all the ingredients. Um, and Link had this vision for legal affairs that it would be, as he said, at the intersection of law and life. So the idea was bring to life this relatively dry topic. And I think that's what I've been trying to do ever since, more or less. Yeah, it seems like uh, a lot of your pieces kind of hit at that 
intersection. Um, and what? How much do you think your your legal degree, like actually getting a law degree, does that generally inform your reporting? Did that feel like that gave you a base that other people don't have when they approach legal stories, or was it just sort of like a nice thing to have in your pocket? Well, the way I think about it is that you can be an excellent legal journalist without going to law school. There are plenty of examples of that. It's not necessary. But for me, it's been much more than a credential in my pocket. It gave me a sense of the questions I wanted to ask, the kind of area I want to tackle, who to call, um, which is can be important. And it also just gave me the confidence to think that maybe I might have an opinion worth sharing. And this is not by any means like a blanket statement, but I think gender for me played a role here. I remember when I was in college, the um, Yale Daily News opinion editor came over to the Yale Women's Center where I was working and said, you know, we really need more female columnists. And the idea of doing that at that moment was totally foreign to me. Hmm. I just couldn't imagine why I would have anything to say that anyone would think was worth hearing and what I would kind of be standing on. And when I finished law school, I had more of a sense of authority and some sense of like, okay, well, at least I know what reporting to do to figure this out so that I can have a stance. I want that stance to be based on facts and reporting as opposed to just like ideology or sounding off. But I kind of felt like I could give myself license to do that um, in a way that without law school would have been much harder for me. Do you ever, uh, presumably you have, you know, friends that you went to uh, law school with who are uh, you know, probably at this point, partners at law firms and uh, making millions of dollars a year. Do you ever did you ever consider a legal career at some point? Not really. I spent six weeks at a law firm during my second summer, and I was pretty miserable and pretty terrible at it. Um, it just wasn't for me. I am not someone who is very careful. And so <laughs> the idea that I would really be responsible in the way that lawyers have to be and risk averse, um, that wasn't a good fit for me. And, you know, for a while I wrestled with the idea of like, well, I should go and do something of social benefit. And I could see people around me doing public interest law or work at law firms mm -hmm. that really had enormous benefit. And I thought, well, that's better than like writing about other people doing good things. But at some point I let myself off the hook because I feel like one does the best work that I would do the best work if I really enjoyed what I was doing. And there's just no question to me that reporting is an amazing experience and privilege. It still surprises me when I go somewhere and people answer all my questions or at least like most of them. Yeah. And right. It's like this entry into a world that I don't really have any right to be part of. I haven't earned my way in there, but I get to be there. I just love that about my work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we hear that a lot on the, on the podcast and I've experienced that too. And I always think it's funny when I, if I go do some reporting and I encounter someone who won't talk to me, and the, the, your sort of first reaction is like, why won't this person talk to me? And then if you really think <laughs> about it, you think, why does anyone like what? This is actually yes. a smart person. This person has realized that they don't need to talk to me. Yes, right. It gives reporters enormous power when people talk to them. And the stories that draw me in, and I think this is true for you and for your whole endeavor, tend to be stories that are not found at like public meetings or, you know, places where people basically have to talk to you. So it's it is really uh, we are very lucky. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, before we get into what some of those stories are, tell me how you got like, how did it end up with legal affairs and sort of how did you how did you end up at Slate? 
I ended up at Slate by starting to write for Slate. And I think that's actually like uh, maybe the only useful part. Everyone has their own career trajectory. (laughs) But I do think that if you start freelancing for a place you want to work for, if that's possible, it's a way to prove yourself. The place, that publication and the way they do things can become part of your DNA in a way that makes it easier to produce what they're looking for. So after I had freelanced a bunch of pieces, I um, asked Jacob Weisberg, who was the editor of Slate, if there were any openings. And I was lucky um, there was. And that was how I got hired at Slate. And what uh, what year was that? That was 2005. I have just been <laughs> trying to remember that myself. But yeah, I think that's right. Slate's been through such so many evolutions. Was that like a Microsoft related era or that was my first day of work was the day that we all had a big meeting at the Washington Post company to talk about the purchase of Slate from Microsoft by the Post. So I never worked for Microsoft, but I guess I've been part of the whole Washington Post era. Ah, I see. I see. And and so you as this sort of like dual editor writer, how do you generally sort those things out? I mean, time wise and and sort of selecting stories that you want to do versus, you know, other stuff you're weighing in on or you're doing podcasts. It seems like there's a lot of juggling that must go on there. Yeah, there is a lot of juggling. And my job has somewhat shifted over time. When I started at Slate, I was mostly editing and doing writing as sort of like my minor and editing was my major. And I think those roles have reversed the longer I've been at Slate. And that's been a reflection of what I wanted to do. And then my editors, my bosses agreeing that they were up for that shift. Mm -hmm. And how one thing that was curious, I was looking back at it. I mean, you've written a lot of New York Times magazine stories and you've written sort of like an ungodly number of Slate stories that I couldn't wrap my head around. (laughs) Um, But how do you... But how do you sort of decide like what goes where? I mean, I, some of the stories seem like they could they could end up at either place. There's some very long pieces at Slate, uh, including the the Phoebe Prince story, which you know the New York Times Magazine would run that, and vice versa. Is there some system by which you say this one goes here, this one goes here? In the beginning, it was simpler because Slate was not really publishing long-form narrative as much. So when I had an idea that seemed like it could work in that format, I would take it to my Times Magazine editor. Mm. But you're totally right, I hope, about the Phoebe Prince story. And that came out of this ingenious project at Slate that David Plott set in motion called the Fresca, which was the idea that you would turn a staff member loose for some amount of time to work on something that would have enough value that it'd be worth, um, you know, a whole bunch of stories or a whole bunch of whatever. And the the key to the work that I did about Phoebe Prince, um, and I guess we should say she was a girl, a 15-year-old, who killed herself very sadly in South Hadley, Massachusetts, and her death was blamed on bullying and on a particular set of kids who then faced criminal charges Mm -hmm. that blamed them for her death. So the key to that for me was that it took a lot of reporting. I had to go back to South Hadley over and over again to do the story. And that's something that is much easier to do if you're on staff somewhere because you just like have more rope. Someone's paying you to go up there over and over again. Um, and someone is helping you through it. So I spent, you know, I remember driving home repeatedly from South Hadley and calling my editor at Slate, John Swansburg, on the phone. And like, I was lucky to have someone who would sort of listen to all of that and 
and support the process because it really wasn't clear until several months in what I had, if anything. Yeah. How did you, so did you have a pre-existing interest in, in writing about bullying before you came across that story? I had just started a series for Slate on bullying that kind of just came out of the sense I had that bullying, in particular cyberbullying, were getting a lot of attention. It was like 2009, the beginning of 2010, uh-huh. and there was just beginning to be news coverage. And I'm interested in teenagers, and I'm interested in alarmism about teenagers and technology and you know teenage cruelty. There was an intersection there that the media was kind of obsessed with. But when I started going to South Hadley, it was honestly because I bought into the initial coverage about Phoebe's death. And I thought, well, this sounds like a school where kids are being terrorized. And how does that happen in this like nice sounding middle class community? What is going on there? Mm -hmm. And then what I found was that, in fact, the experience of the kids at Phoebe's high school didn't match the portrayal, um, the kind of black and white um, portrayal that was coming across, especially on television. And you actually write in, uh, I think, in both the article and in the book. So we should say the the article that was on Slate also like is expanded in many ways as part of your book. But you talk a little bit about how uh, you were almost reluctant to do the story, like when you discovered that it was the other side. It wasn't what the media was portraying as actually like these kids weren't like roving bands of bullies in the halls who had done this. It was much more complex that you sort of hesitated. Did you think about just saying like, I don't actually want to do this story? I had a moment where I was looking at all these court documents that really told the story the way the kids had experienced it. And in a way that was, in my view, very much at odds with the way the prosecutor had portrayed it. And I was scared. It It's like a big thing to take on. And at that moment in time, the idea of questioning what was being called a bully side seemed like a kind of fringe thing to do because all of the mainstream media coverage was going in that direction. And I... What kept me motivated um, at that moment was that I was talking to psychologists and people who are experts on suicide prevention, and they were quietly questioning the bully side narrative and explanation and Mm -hmm. saying that they actually thought it was doing a disservice to kids because it oversimplified or it just was a mismatch often, even for the particular facts in a case like Phoebe's. So that kind of gave me the gumption to to keep plugging away. And, you know, I also had a sense at that point that I had a scoop, um, which is like an unusual thing to actually really feel like you're contributing something to a big conversation that hasn't been out there. So I and I felt some responsibility at that point, too, to these kids who are facing criminal charges, even though I actually hadn't spoken to any of them. Um, I felt that what was happening to them was probably unwarranted and that it was important to get another side of the story out there. And how did you sort of uh, approach, you know, there's this, you know, the mother of of Phoebe, the woman, the, the girl who killed herself. I mean, she's like this sort of incredibly sympathetic, uh, you know, character person for the media, for for everyone and and almost sort of untouchable in a way like you can't uh, you can't go in and question someone's experience whose daughter has committed suicide. But your your story was going. I mean, that the narrative of the bullies was also sort of her narrative. And I'm curious, like, how did you approach thinking about uh, how she was going to react, or whether you know she would talk to you, or whether she would know that this story would would 
kind of convey that other side without sort of invalidating what happened would, you know, go deeper into it. Yeah, that was really hard for me. In some ways, she made it easier because she didn't want to talk to me. Uh So I didn't deal with her directly. But I did spend quite a bit of time talking to Phoebe's father, who is in Ireland, a little more removed from the whole situation, but obviously deeply invested, loved his daughter a great deal. And um, and it was really important for me to talk to him. And his perspective was certainly reflected in my thinking and in the writing that I did. And, you know, one of the hard, toughest things, I think, about this kind of writing is when you feel like you disappoint someone who is speaking with you and is telling you their personal story mm-hmm. um, and and whose perspective you can really understand, even if in the end you decide you don't share it. So I, for me, those are maybe the really hardest moments of doing this work. And you have to I kind of let myself feel a lot of distress about all that empathy. But then I try to write without it on my shoulder exactly. Or at least maybe that's where you have to trust your editors to kind of help you have some perspective. Mm -hmm. So when the initial story came out, it was, you know, it got a huge amount of attention. uh, And I'm sure you heard from a lot of people. Did you did you hear from people that sort of rubbed at that you know, empathetic, not not sort of guilt, but that that feeling. Did you get things from people saying like, "How could you write this story?" Absolutely, yes. I mean, the mo- the main reaction to that story was one of fury and rage. So I have sort of two feelings about this. One is that if you're going to be an internet journalist at this moment in time, which just means like you're going to be a journalist at all, (laughs) you have to have a thick skin because people are going to come at you all the time. And if you get involved in, you know, any back and forth or just like really letting it get to you, you're going to be paralyzed. So I had learned that lesson many times over at Slate before this piece came out, and I think it served me well. But I at the same time feel like when someone levies a criticism at you and you feel like they are right and that you've missed something or that you got something wrong, it's really important to take that to heart. And with the Phoebe Prince story, I'm sure there are ways I could have told that story better or, you know, tried harder. But I did not hear from people who had expertise I respected who had a problem with that story. If anything, I felt like there was this that story kind of freed other reporters and and lots of experts into being able to to question the cyberbullying narrative mm-hmm. and that that was like probably in the end a good thing. But I also am very aware that, you know, Phoebe's parents absolutely were angry with me and I'm sure would totally disagree with my portrayal of that. Mhm. It, it was a it was a interesting story as a reader just because uh, it it was it's almost like a cliffhanger if you read the the slate version because the kids are being prosecuted and then you sort of get to the end and uh, you don't know what happened but then if then when you read the book actually the outcome is in the book um, and I don't want to spoil it for people so they should go read the book so you you did the slate story and then how much longer did you keep go back keep going back for the for the book reporting. Oh, a long time because the Slate story came out and those kids were very much still facing charges and then the criminal justice system had to take its time to play out. So, you know, it it did extend into time. And from my point of view, I mean, one of the criticisms of the Slate, the original Slate story was that I wrote before the 
you know, justice system had had its say. Right. But my feeling was that that was the right moment because that was the moment where possibly what I might have, the questions I was raising might make some sort of difference. Huh. Interestingly, like the, the outcome seemed better than the possible outcome for those, for the kids who were accused of bullying, but also just the whole thing just ended. It was all very sad. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I sometimes joke about, although it's really not funny, I guess, is that I am drawn to these dark topics where there's a lot of sadness and complexity. And sometimes it makes me wonder why I'm moving in that direction. A couple of years ago, I was pitching another really dark story and the editor I was talking to looked up at me sort of plaintively and said, do you have anything a little more upbeat? (laughs) Was that the uh, victims of child pornography story? Yes. And I thought to myself, like, you know, you're right. You have a point. It wouldn't kill me um, to find something a little happier. I actually, I do want to talk about that story in a second, but um, but while we're talking about the book, there was something else that really uh, caught my eye in the book that I just thought was really fascinating, which is there's a there's sort of these you know three main uh, teenage characters that you follow, and there's a lot of experts and other people woven into it, and their their narratives are in there in these different sections, and in one of them, there's a certain point at which uh, this girl has left the school's. Uh, Monique is the name of the girl. She mm-hmm. left the school and she's sort of looking for a new school and she can't find a new school. And you actually uh, talk to someone that you know that, you know, eventually results in her finding a new school. And you sort of briefly say, like, this is not typically what the journalistic approach would be. And I'm curious, like, what thinking went into that at that moment? And has that happened to you before where you've sort of intervened in a story or was that a singular case? It has happened to me before. It doesn't happen often. But I, you know, when you have these long relationships with people you're writing about and they are suffering and there's something relatively easy you can do to step in, I just couldn't watch it anymore. And I'm not saying it's like the right choice for everybody. I understand that in some ways I broke the rules or at least I broke one set of rules that is a common and useful set of rules. Mm-hmm. But in that situation for Monique, I she was out of school for a year. She was depressed. Her mom had tried so hard to help her and was just getting stonewalled by her local school district. And then, you know, out of great privilege, someone I knew became the secretary of education for the state of Connecticut. So the idea that like a whole year into this bad set of developments for this one individual girl, I wasn't going to just like sit down and, you know, try to talk to this very nice guy, Stefan Pryor, I knew and just tell him this story. It just seemed to me like that was a pretty small thing to do. And honestly, it wasn't that hard a decision to make. Yeah. It seemed to sort of like uh, inadvertently like highlight another aspect of what you were reporting on to me that it, there a lot of the reporting is like this this family is trying to deal with this fact that they're you know the daughter is getting bullied and they have to take her out of school and it's just like they're going to the school board and they have no answers and then there there's sort of like another uh, narrative there which is like when you're not. Uh, when you're not privileged and you don't have those connections, like you can't make things happen and that someone who's in a more privileged position can like make things happen uh, that they struggled to. And that that's not really a theme of the book, but I just thought it was interesting that it sort of like came to light in that moment that that could help her in a way that like many other things that they had tried couldn't. 
Yeah, it's something I think about a lot. Who gets what and why? And, you know, if there's someone who you're close to or you care about in your life and they there's something you could do for them that you would do. I have three younger sisters, so I often think about it in these terms. Mm-hmm. Like, would I do this for my sister? And if the answer is yes, then to me the question becomes, okay, well, why wouldn't I do it for this other person? And sometimes there's a good reason. Sometimes it's just not the right call. It could be paternalistic. It could be wrong-minded. You could think that you have the solution and actually be part of the problem. But if you're if you know the people you're talking about well and you consult them and make sure that actually they think it would be helpful, then I feel like sometimes it is the right choice to intervene. And how do you uh, internalize or avoid internalizing some of these dark stories? I'm thinking again of the, you know, this Times Magazine story about the victims of child pornography and how they, you know, they get re-traumatized by finding out that their photos are around the internet and, you know, their legal fights and that sort of thing. And it's just like, that's the darkest of dark when it comes to sort of just like thinking about the world. Um, and what, what, what effect does that have on you? Well, I don't avoid it. I let it in. I mean, I sometimes feel like I kind of walk around with like a surfeit of empathy and that it's what I have to offer because I have had a really stable, good life in which like my parents took good care of me. And yes, I have my problems and my neuroses and craziness, just like everyone else. But basically things are okay. And so this is a way in which I can use that to understand other people's experiences. Maybe it has a little bit of benefit to them. I'm also trying to be really aware that it is has a lot of professional benefit to me that we're not ta- there's not this isn't there's nothing purely or even maybe at all altruistic about this exchange. It's transactional in the Janet Malcolm classic sense, mm-hmm. but also in an emotional sense there is a way in which like I'm super open. I take in these experiences. They keep me up at night. They really get inside me, but then I'm also using them to to craft the, the whatever I'm working on. When you're working on, I mean, you do a, a lot of writing for Slate that is, it's sort of like, uh, you know, takes on the news in a sense, but it, it, it tends to have reporting in it. Like your shorter pieces are actually, from what I saw, like often quite long relative to other stuff you would typically find on the web. And I'm curious like, what's your level of sort of wanting to just, like, weigh in on the issues of the day? Like, if, if something out there about, um, you know, whether it's feminism or the various topics you write, you know, write about legal, legal issues, do you think, like, I want to have my voice out there on this topic? There are certain topics that I follow that are, like, threads through the news. You know, bullying has become one of them. Um, Reproductive rights. I've gotten interested in college sexual assault lately. They're sort of like these sub-themes. And then there are moments where I feel like I should weigh in or one of my editors feel like I should weigh in. And I'm glad you said that about the pieces having some reporting in them. You know, sometimes I feel like I would be more of an armchair journalist if I had any faith that I was able to say anything of interest or get it right. But there's almost no question that comes across my desk where I know the answer without going to ask someone or go to read something. I'm I'm actually constantly flummoxed that everyone and maybe people do feel that way and they're just better at faking it than I am. But I, I almost never know the answer to any question I set out to answer in the beginning of the day. Do you find yourself in the crosshairs of sort of, you know, whether everything ranging from just like internet controversy to sort of like 
you know, Twitter level level harassment kind of stuff? Do you find yourself feeling what a lot of journalists feel on the web of like being attacked? I do sometimes feel that way. And that's when I try to have a thick skin about it and let it wash over me and just not take up very much time. So one thing, for example, I don't do often is read the comments on Slate because they tend to be angry and attacking. And I, Hmm. you know, years ago, I was writing much more about my kids. This was when they were little. I've since decided it's like basically not fair to them. Plus, I didn't want them to go Google themselves and get all weirded out. So I mostly stopped. But I used to write about them a lot. And one of the first pieces I went in and did read the comments because these were personal pieces I had put so much of myself into. And someone said in an accusatory way that my kids had to be imaginary. (laughs) And that was like kind of the end for me. I thought, (laughs) okay, like this is crazy. And this is not, this is not, I don't want to be inundated by this. Yeah. Don't (laughs) read the comments. So did you decide not to stop writing about your kids? In in hindsight, did you decide that no, you should not write about your kids at all? Or did they reach an age where you thought this is the age at which you should not write about? Had you changed your mind entirely or was there actually just like a cutoff? It was more mushy. It was more. So when I was writing about them, I would run every idea by my husband and then I would run a draft by my husband. And if he vetoed, then the piece had to go. That was like a pretty good rule because, you know, when you're writing about your kids, you're being a little bit mercenary about them and using them as fodder. And I wanted them to have a champion who had more distance. (laughs) But at some point, I I stopped wanting to think about them that way so much. And I think it was also just like their self-awareness. You know, this was when they were like, I don't know, six or seven or eight that I started getting more nervous. And people uh, once in a while would say to them, like, oh, you know, your mom wrote that piece. Mm. And they would be mystified because I wasn't talking to them about it. And I thought, like, okay, this <laughs> this is getting a little weird. And they should be able to create their own online personas. They don't need me determining that for them. And so I haven't completely stopped. I, I'm not going to claim that purity <laughs> because I may violate my own rule at any moment. But now I write about them less. And when I do it, I talk to them about it first. They're 11 and 14 now. I so see. they can read things and decide if they're comfortable or not. There would be some kind of uh, horrible irony in one of your kids being made fun of at school by a bully because you wrote <laughs> something about them. Yes. Although, you know, the real challenge for my children is that if they acted like a bully, that would be bad for me. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's true. (laughs) That that would be a story for somebody. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure anyone would really care, but in our small community, it would not be so great. Luckily, so far, at least, they seem to be more or less not falling into that trap. (laughs) The other slate uh, related thing I was, I was, Actually, there's two more uh, that I was curious about. One was like sort of what happened with the with the double X thing, because that is it's interesting, I think, in light of there. There are these sites now like Jezebel and the hairpin that really like have this certain identity. And I feel like was double X kind of like before its time or maybe just describe like what what it was. Is. Yeah, well, Double X started after Jezebel and feministing. It was a site that was like, a, you know, a site mostly written by women. We struggled a lot about. We didn't want to say it was for women because we were hoping that men would be interested too. Yeah. So we went for the idea it was mostly by women, um, and then we chose this name for it, Double X, which simply has to do with like the chromosomal count as opposed. <laughs> 
just any. And we struggled with that as well. And then we thirdly struggled with whether Double X should be a separate spinoff site from Slate or whether it should be part of Slate. And for a while, when I co-founded it with Hannah Rosen and Megan O'Rourke, it was a spinoff site and it was exciting to have it have a separate identity. But as a business proposition, that just didn't work very well. And, you know, I think in hindsight, maybe... And I'm not sure we were right, but I think we tried to kind of we saw ourselves as being less purely feminist in an ideologically driven sense uh-huh. than some of the other women's sites. And maybe like a little bit big sisterly, but they might completely resent that characterization. And I don't know, maybe there was um, an appetite for what we were writing because we had lots of response and Double X has remained a has become it it got folded back into slate and now it's like a very vibrant um well trafficked well read section of slate uh-huh. but maybe our conception of it was less um marketable in the end than the like you know more kind of young maybe hipster feminist version that a site like Gem- Jezebel or feministing was producing i don't know cuz i haven't seen their books but we were trying to do something a little bit different, but still in that space. Uh huh. And did you did you enjoy like running a thing? You know, like being. Did that make you feel like, oh, yeah, I want to. I would like to edit a whole publication. I would like to, you know, start something. Or or did you, you feel like you dodged a bullet? No. <laughs> It wasn't. I enjoyed parts of it. I loved working with Hannah and Megan, and there were some really creative, exciting things about that experience. I'm glad I had it. But I didn't really like running anything, actually. I found it really nerve-wracking. I live in New Haven, Connecticut. I had to go into New York a lot. Uh I didn't like that. My kids didn't like that. Um, But mostly I missed having the time to do deeper reporting and writing. And so I was pretty... um, much like wholeheartedly <laughs> excited and relieved to go back to that. Although, like I said, I'm, you know, grateful and glad I had that experience. And with all the the sort of the number of pieces that you've written, you know, for Slate over the years, you've also reviewed a lot of books for the Times. Are there pieces floating out there on the internet that you think, oh, I, sh- I wish I hadn't, either I wish I hadn't written that or uh, I don't believe that anymore? That's such a good question. I don't, think so. I mean, I'm sure I've made mistakes. Um, and I'm sure if I really thought about it, I could find something where I like really screwed something up. I've certainly said things on the Slate Political Gap Fest, the <laughs> podcast we do. I said something last week that was really dumb that I think I might apologize for today. Really? Yeah. What was it? I, we, we were talking about the plan Los Angeles was floating to have a lottery, a $50,000 lottery for voters. Oh, yeah. So that like, right. And I said, oh, I was arguing with David Plotz and I got a little rhetorically carried away. And I said, oh, $50,000 is enough to transform, is not enough to transform anyone's life. Partly I was just trying to score points and in the argument. And partly I was thinking about poor people and how $50,000 for a whole poor family really wouldn't go very far. But I got a bunch of sad emails and tweets from people rightly saying, hey, you know, you really blew it and I could pay off my car loans or my college debt and you must be so out of touch if you don't think (laughs) $50,000 is a lot of money. And so I've been feeling really badly about that. I just looked at it through the wrong lens and mostly I think I just let my desire to win an argument lead me astray. (laughs) I didn't even win the argument. Well, that's what's funny about that podcast or vis-a-vis what you're saying before about like, you know, putting reporting into even your your sort of you know, slightly opinion-y pieces that are online that when when you all are on that podcast, you're 
you are just sort of bantering like you're three friends sitting around and everyone's expressing their opinion. And you, as far as I know, do you like research the topics beforehand? Or you just kind of we like... luckily have an intern who does a really excellent research brief for us. <laughs> but what you said is true. I mean, my you know, sometimes I think to myself, like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding. We're supposed to talk about the export import bank today. And I was trying so hard and studiously to read about it this morning. But economics is not my strong suit, and it's gonna be a little light on the you know, deep embedded facts. So yeah, there is a way in which what we do with the podcast is like, I don't know, feckless, irresponsible, just dumb. Uh, <laughs> but you're also really good at it. I mean, I was laughing because I, I listened to them and uh, and for this, for the long form podcast, we originally had this idea that we were going to have like 10 minutes of of like gabbing before any interview. And we tried it a couple of times and it was just terrible. Like, really? Yeah, I can't, gab. I can't gab for 10 minutes. Well, we were talking about magazines and kind of like what's out this week, you know, and things like that. But uh-huh. it's sort of like it it seems like uh, did you come naturally to being able to do that on, you know, on a microphone? Well, what happened with that podcast was that Andy Bowers, our producer, had the kind of idea of starting some sort of political roundtable. And from the beginning, it was supposed to be a show that was like what you what people talk about in the green room after the show. Mm. That was the conception. But it wasn't clear it was going to be David and John and me. It was clear that it was going to be John hosting and there were like rotating guests. And the the way it evolved was just that John and David and I used to walk to get lunch together a lot. We were friends. And so we would talk on the way to lunch and on the way back. We almost never actually sat and ate lunch together. But we had these walks and we would like toss ideas back and forth in the way that you do with your friends. And it was really fun. So then when we happened to start taping the show on a couple of weeks, that dynamic just became a part of the show. We didn't really have another way to talk to each other. So it always had that. And, you know, in the beginning, we figured nobody was listening. It wasn't like anyone really, we didn't have a research brief and we just figured whatever. And then it just sort of like took on a life of its own over time. And I think we all are, if if we have any self-awareness about it, it's that what people like about that show is Andy's original conception. And so yeah. we have tried to just stick with that. Yeah. And, and, what about the TV appearances? Like, how did you first, what did you first go on TV for? It feels like you've been on the Colbert Report multiple times. Is that right? Yes. Um, the first time I went on TV, I think, was this completely disastrous appearance on the Lair News Hour. Is that what it's called now? You know, the PBS show? Yeah, yeah it used to be McNeil Lair, but I guess it's just, uh, it might just be like the News Hour now. Yeah, maybe that's right. Well, when I went on it the first time, it was when John Roberts got nominated for the Supreme Court. And you know how you asked me if I could take something back? This is what I would take back. It was awful. So they asked me, first of all, I was like, you know, if you've ever taped in a TV studio where everyone else is in the real studio and you're like by yourself somewhere looking into that black box, it's really awful. I hate doing that. Still, I hate it. And that was I'd never done it before. And I was super scared and nervous. So I did okay with the first couple questions. Maybe. I don't know. I've never been able to watch this. But then the host threw me this question about John Roberts's background that I swear to God has never come up since. (laughs) And I can't even tell you what it was because I blacked the whole thing out. But it was 
at the moment, sure, I guess fair game, but they hadn't prepped me for it at all. I had no idea what he was talking about. And what you're supposed to do in that moment is just think of something to say, but I could not. And I think I literally, it was so bad that even my mother told me it was bad. And she never criticizes anything I do. So yeah, that was disastrous. That did not feel like a successful appearance to you, but uh, it probably wasn't as bad as you. No, no, it was remember. as bad as I think, Evan. There's no two. <laughs> there's there's no other interpretation of that one. Sorry. <laughs> but it didn't stop you from uh, from being on TV again in the future. Well, right, because like, like we're all, you know, <laughs> I don't know what we all are, but yes, it didn't stop me. Maybe it should have. What happened with the Colbert Report was that. Um, one morning, David Plotz picked his phone rang and he picked it up and there was a voice on the other end complaining that we had posted the GabFest late in the day. And the person said he was Stephen Colbert and David didn't believe him. But it was, in fact, Stephen Colbert. Really? Um, yes. And it turned out that Stephen was a big fan of the GabFest. So that's how I came to be on the show. And it meant that I have always felt really comfortable there because I feel like that me on the GabFest is actually really me and also me who argues. So I just like think of Stephen as the person I'm arguing with. <laughs> so how regular is it that you go on? Oh, it's not very regular. I mean, it's been like once or twice a year for the past few years. Let's not give me too much credit here. And who knows, now that they're moving on to network television, I don't know if their Supreme Court commentary will continue. Uh, we'll have to see. Could get even bigger. Maybe. Although the other part of it is like, well, if it ends, I have this nice out like, oh, well, you know, it's just that the network, it, it's not yeah. because, right. It'll just be like I had a nice run. <laughs> yeah. You're you're for cable. Like your material is not. It's not exactly. And it and it's actually I can pretend that it's like because I'm so high minded or something as opposed to just like that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's talk about the story that's out currently out in The Times magazine. Actually, as we're taping this, I think it went up. Uh, this morning, maybe. Is that right? Yeah. And it has, I, I'm a big reader of the Times Magazine in print, uh, and it has this crazy cover where the cover is sideways. Have you seen this? Yes. It, I think it's pretty <laughs> awesome, I have to say. I had nothing to do with creating that cover. I really like it. Yeah. So, t- so tell a little bit about what it's, what it's about. It's about abortion, but it's a little bit of a different, uh, unusual kind of approach to this topic, I would say. Yeah. Right. The cover line for the story is abortion by mail. And it is largely about a doctor in Amsterdam named Rebecca Gompertz, who has created a one of a kind Internet telemedicine service in which women around the world who live in countries where abortion is illegal or severely restricted, they can write in to a help desk in Amsterdam. And if they're eligible for an abortion, um, you know, medically speaking, if they're eligible to take the, the pills you can take during the first trimester to have an abortion, then Rebecca Gompertz and her staff will connect them to a doctor in an undisclosed location who will write a prescription. And that prescription gets filled by a drug exporter in India named Mohan Kale, who Gompertz trusts and believes will send high-quality drugs. Because you can order these pills online, but there are a lot of scams out there. So Mohan Kale and his company are sending packages of pills all over the world to women who otherwise would have no chance or a really hard time getting them. And, you know, the question the story raises, I think, is whether this is a sort of future for delivering abortion care and, and abortion services. And one of the things that really interested me about it is not the medication itself, because that's been around now since the late 80s or the 90s. Yeah. 
right? But th- it's only in the last few years that there's been research making it pretty clear that women can take these pills and miscarry on their own and that that's safe and effective. And that idea that women could do this by themselves, the idea that you don't necessarily need a clinic or even a doctor, is pretty um, radical. And and if you think about it, it could really change the way um, people debate this issue and the way it's provided. Yeah, it seemed one of the fascinating issues was just thinking about the the legal implications of, you know, you can outlaw abortion at a clinic, but uh, then are you going to outlaw someone taking these pills? And what does that mean to to try to stop that from happening? It seemed like some countries were trying to stop the pills from actually even getting in yes, uh, to the yes. country. That's true. Brazil is confiscating a lot of these packages right now. And that's something that Gomberns and her staff at this organization, which is called Women on Web. They've been tearing their hair out trying to kind of trace these pills and see where they go and make sure women aren't being prosecuted. In the United States, 15 states have passed laws that ban the practice of telemedicine to provide abortion. In other Mm -hmm. words, doctors have to be physically present when their patients swallow the pills, whether that's medically necessary or not. And, you know, that's another really interesting set of questions about whether those laws are justified and how they are one more way in which states where abortion is unpopular are restricting women's ability to access it. And one reason I thought it would be really interesting to talk right now, like right when it comes out, is I mean, you've written a, about, uh, you know, abortion and choice and uh, these topics in a, in a lot of different ways in the past and a lot of different types of stories. And this sort of I mean, do you know that this piece is going to like hit a tremendous nerve? Like, does every abortion piece hit a tremendous nerve or does this one in particular? Do you think it's going to like you anticipating a kind of wave of your things you're going to have to deal with in the next week? You know, a lot of abortion stories do have a big wave of response. I never know in advance what's going to hit. I feel like I'm actually terrible at judging hmm. that in general. Sometimes I'll work really hard on something and think it's super important. And then it feels like, did anyone hear me? <laughs> <laughs> but I wrote this piece because I really wanted people to think. They can disagree with it, you know, criticize this idea as much as they want. But it's it's kind of mind bending and a thought experiment. And especially at this moment in the, I mean, so internationally, I feel like the case for what Gompertz is doing is strong as a matter of harm reduction. That's what public health officials call this because there are still 47,000 women around the world who are dying every year from unsafe abortions. And when you ask experts like, okay, well, there is some risk from taking these pills and miscarrying at home. So how do you balance that? They point to all those deaths. And for them, it's like, Really not a big question. Mm -hmm. In the United States, we have a different situation. We don't have people dying from back alley abortions, but we do have this increasing wave of restrictions. And so I want to just sort of raise a question about how we're restricting this service and what the impact is on people's lives. And how did you find uh, how did you find the character? Is this something that you sort of knew about and have been tracking for a while? Oh, no. Does that ever happen to magazine journalists? I feel like the hardest part of my job is coming up with ideas. (laughs) And usually it's just like some serendipitous moment. In this case, I was at an event um, 
just talking to someone who I think I maybe had spoken to her before, but I didn't really know her. And she was working at that point with Rebecca Gompertz, and she told me about this service. And I thought, oh, my God, I've never heard of anything like that before. And I know I write enough on this topic that I thought, well, if I don't know about it, maybe other people don't know about it either. Huh. And it is... uh... Is there any sort of rhyme or reason to how your your stories come about? Like, take that like victims of pornography story. Like, how does one uh, how does one end up landing on that as a kind of thing to pitch your editor? Yeah, no rhyme or reason there either. I mean, I would say that I'm interested in stories where there's some kind of big to me big question that involves law and often science, and just like stories about people's lives. So. I think by accident, I look for ideas where all three of those things are present. And when I'm lucky, I light on one that editors are interested in as well. Um, And sometimes that doesn't happen. And I have a story right now I've been working on that I... I am sure that if I could just figure out how to pitch it right, someone would want it. But it's been really tricky to figure out how to do that. So I don't actually have even still like that much faith in my own judgment about this. And I do think there's a way in which like the marketplace helps here that Mm -hmm. the idea. Right. Like if you can if you can explain to an editor why you're excited about something and then a light goes off in her head or his head, too, that's a pretty good sign. And, And maybe if you can't, then that means like the story doesn't get to have the life you want for it. Yeah, that's a that's a very I feel like that's the maximally mature approach. It could also be very frustrating. You're sort of like, no, they just don't get it. They're, yeah, you know, well, I'm not just find the my... right editor. Right? No, totally. And I will be really dogged sometimes. I mean, with this piece, I'm not giving up yet either. Uh, right. So, and you feel like I don't know. For me, this is a story that's based on a long interview I did months ago, and I feel like I owe the woman who talked to me every every effort to try to, you know, get this story to see the light. Um, so, and I'm, I am really sure that it's because I haven't figured out the right way to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about writing. Uh, I noticed you've, you've written a fair number of book reviews. Um, and, uh, and then you, and then you wrote a book and, uh, I mean, maybe it's not the best question cause I think your book was very well reviewed, but did you come to think about, uh, being a critic, uh, any differently? when you actually, when your book came out? Yes. And I think even before that, I mean, I love writing book reviews because it's like a homework assignment. I mean, you can go and write, like you can do other research and it's a good idea to do that. But essentially someone gave you something and mostly what you're doing is reading that thing and writing about it. It has this like bounded quality that I super appreciate. I think when I started out, I was more slashing in my book reviews. And that's because I didn't have, you know, this is like a cliche that when you write a book, you think about you're so aware of all the effort that goes into it and you feel more respectful of that. I also think there's like something for good or bad about maturing, too, that you start wanting to like think about how you're taking your shots and is it really worth it? I have to say, though, that sometimes the best book reviews to read are the ones that are really mean. So I'm not even sure that it's the right move to become a little more careful. But I do kind of feel that impulse. Yeah, I I've, I feel like that's the that's the hypocrisy of it for me. Like I I. I don't like, you know, seeing someone who I know their book get criticized. Uh, 
but I also like I can remember this like Walter Kern review of a Don DeLillo book that I read in the New York Times book review that was like the best book review I've ever read and it was just vicious like those are the ones that that kind of stand out and you you think like wow that's a great piece of mean writing right well and I think the other thing in defense of the vicious book review and that one in particular is you have to pick your target so Don DeLillo Good. Yeah, he can take it. Yeah, he's, true. Right? Like, he's super famous. I actually did just write a mean book review. I'm lying. Um, it was about, <laughs> it was a book by Ted Olson and David Boys about their um, triumphant march to the Supreme Court in the California uh, gay marriage case. And I thought it was just a really self-congratulatory and irresponsible piece of work because mm. they really, on their way to trumpeting their own accomplishments, they diminished the contributions of all these gay rights, actual gay people litigators who had done really all the heavy lifting and the work that has had the most legal impact. So uh-huh. I did go after that book and I felt like, okay, these are people who can take it and they deserve it. And so in that sense, it is important to still let yourself um, be slashing and honest, I think. What's your sort of like uh, view of like a your career trajectory going forward? Like, do you see yourself writing more books? Do you see yourself uh, just kind of like doing what you're doing or that there's some like right turn out there that you would like to take at some point? How do you sort of view your like a writing career at this point? I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I love the mix of long form narrative journalism and then more insta internet commentary um you know not irresponsibly hopefully but with some ability to react quickly to news developments i i have fun doing that and i have the metabolism for it and i would love to write another book so i'm sort of starting to think along those lines as well although i don't think that's going to happen tomorrow (laughs) when did you know with the bullying uh topic that you sort of had edged far enough into it that you felt like there was a a full book there? Um, When my current agent called me and suggested it. (laughs) I needed... A bright line. Yes. I I need some... Sometimes I need other people to tell me. (laughs) Um, Well, that's a good place to stop. Why don't we stop there? Great. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Evan. It's been completely a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast this week. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern is Timothy Maddox. And thanks to Emily Bazelon for coming on the show amidst her other podcast responsibilities. Our sponsor is Tiny Letter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. 
you can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.